So it's been a little bit since I've mentioned the Lord of the Rings, and so I'm going to do that today. I kind of try to space it out a little bit, but I just couldn't help but mention this particular instance of the Lord of the Rings, and as we deal with this idea of being dead in our trespasses and sins, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, one of the main characters is a man by the name of Aragorn, and he is the, the heir to the throne of men, and he's the one that's prophesied to kind of bring redemption to all of Middle-earth. In order to do that, one of the ways it's gonna, this is going to have to happen is he has to defeat this great enemy, Sauron, who has this great army. And Aragorn realizes that the forces that he has are pretty small. And so he goes to call upon the army of the dead, which uh, are known as the, the men of Dunharrow. And the men of Dunharrow are a group of people who at one point were supposed to fight for the forces of good, yet they broke their oath and instead sided with the forces of evil. They broke their oath to the former king many years ago, and they were cursed to eternal death until the one true king could come back and remove that curse from them and free them. Aragorn calls upon these men to fulfill their oath and help him defeat Sauron. In our own situations before Christ, it mimics this idea of this army of the dead. Without Christ, we are, as the text that we're going to read today, dead in our trespasses and our sins. We are cursed because of our own sin, because we are unable to seek after those things that, that can help us. We are a lost cause without Christ. Without outside help, we are doomed to wander aimlessly through life, seeking things to help us, but only coming up short time and time again because we are unable to seek out those things that can help us. This sin goes back to the time of Adam and Eve and their decision to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after the decision to do that, of course, the world was changed forever. No longer would men and women seek after God on their own accord, but they would seek other things in order to save their souls. And no longer would they seek after the Lord and King Jesus, but they would seek for any other leader, including themselves, including Satan, to save them. No longer would they consider the words of God as something to guide them, but they would look at God's word in disgust and seek out their own wisdom and their own authority. They would no longer serve God, but they would serve themselves. As you read the, the, the entirety of the Old Testament and even into the New, you, you see that. You see just that. That playing itself out throughout the Scriptures. So as we look at this passage today, I want to spend some time looking at the state that man is in because of their sin and open the door to how we are going to be delivered from that. This is a two-part message of a kind because I want to read all of 1 through 10. If we just stop at verse 3 today, we're going to be left wondering if there's any hope at all. So of course we're going to read 1 through 10 so that we can see the work of salvation that comes through Jesus, but I'm going to be focusing most of our time in verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to be looking at three main ideas, the course of this world, the prince of the air, and the desire of their heart. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. 
And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So for a little context, over the last few weeks we've looked at God's redemptive plan for his people in chapter 1, from the foundation of the earth, him preserving a people for himself, electing them, adopting them, redeeming them, assuring them of those promises by sending the Holy Spirit as his guarantee. So as we move forward into chapter 2, we have another picture of how that salvation is taking place, of bringing dead sinners to life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we read these verses, we're reading some of the most quoted and used verses in Scripture. This Ephesians chapter 2 probably is one of the most quoted chapters, particularly these first ten verses. So as we read through them, we need to be careful not to simply glaze over them as something that we've seen before, something we've studied before. You know, we wish you'd just show us something new. We've been here. We've been down this path. What do I have to learn from this? Brothers and sisters, let us not forget that God's word is inexhaustible and the God whom we worship reserves the right to teach us little bits at a time so that we, fallible people, can understand, can manage. There is as much to be learned in, on, in this passage the first time we studied as is there is the 500th time that we've studied it. So let us keep that in mind as we come to it today. We're looking at the first point, the course of this world. Look again at verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. I'd like to explore the word dead here in the opening phrase because I think this is very important to the understanding of this whole chapter because we have this idea as we read of there's someone who's dead or there's people who are dead and they have been brought to life and so it's very important that we understand that because that is the church we need to go all the way back to genesis which is a good place to start any theological foundation remember adam is created and he's given a mandate to fill and subdue the earth and he's placed in the garden and he's given some rules how he is to live in that garden so turn with me to genesis chapter 2 Genesis chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 17. Genesis 2, 15 through 17 says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam was told that he should keep the garden. He was given free reign over every tree save one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was he was given reign to fully enjoy himself, to, to freely eat of every tree of the garden. If he broke God's law and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. And so the, the language here is important because in, if you read in the original language, it says that he says you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. In the original language, it says you may eat, eat of every tree of the garden, letting us know that this eating that he was supposed to do, he was supposed to do so freely, that this was something that he should do in, in inexhaustible, right? These The measures of God's gifts were just inexhaustible. Save this one tree. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die or die, die. If they broke his law, that they would die. And the reader understood this in the day, that as much as they were to enjoy the other fruits of the garden, that they would face unimaginable death if they ate of this one tree. Of course, we know the end of the story. We know that Adam and Eve partake of the tree and they face death. And while they won't die physically for hundreds of years later, the kind of death that God was talking about wasn't just a physical death, but it was a spiritual one. We fast forward to Romans 5.12. I'll read there. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This indicates that this death wasn't just for Adam and Eve, but all their posterity, as the Confession of Faith says. What is the substance of this death? Well, again, in Romans 3, a verse that we quote from often here, or passage that we quote from often, and Psalm 53 actually is the origin or origin of those words in Romans 3. We have a great picture of this spiritual death. So turn with me to Romans 3, and I'll read from that. Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, outline what what the Lord means by dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 10 says this, And it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So those who are dead in their sins because of Adam's sins first and then because of their own sins following from that, this is the result of that. They cannot seek God. They cannot do good things. They cannot understand the things of God. No one is righteous. They have altogether become worthless. They no longer fear God because they don't fully grasp Him. They know there is a God, but they reject that idea and they place, they want to place themselves on the throne of God. Romans 1 reminds us that 
even in this lost condition, they recognize God, but they exchange the truth about God for a lie. They are lost. They are dead, truly dead in their sins. Why is it important for us to bring this up? Well, this idea stands at the front door of the debate between two very large areas of theology which represent overarching themes in Scripture, how we view all of Scripture even. These ideas, to use a couple of big words this morning, are the ideas of monergism and synergism. Monergism states that God alone saves whom he will by doing what this text describes, taking someone who is dead in their trespasses and making them alive in Christ Jesus. God doing the work there. Synergism says that man is somehow able to reach out to God in his death and call upon him. And then God responds to him by saving him. Why is this important? Again, why is this distinction important? The correct understanding of this passage hinges upon what we believe about death, about man's state in sin, to the extent at which man is dead because of their sin. If we believe that man has any ability to assist in this salvation process, then we take some of that freedom away from God. That God is somehow bound by what we do on this earth. As we go through this passage today, keep in mind this idea of death because as we consider the fact that those who are dead in their sins follow after the course of this world, the ruler of the air, after their own desires, we'll see what it truly means to be dead in our trespasses and our sins. And that brings me to this next idea, the course of this world. Look at verse 2. Being dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. The word here is where we get the English word eon, which is a long period of time, right? So it could be translated following the age of this world. And probably some of your translations may even say that. So how does one follow a period of time? How do we follow an age, right? I think what Paul's getting at here is that one who is dead in their trespasses and sins will follow after the way that the world does things for that particular time, for that particular age, which is why I think course is actually a good translation here. After the course of this world means that they follow the world as to what it thinks, the world, as to what the world thinks is good and right and listens to the world's and its opinions about important things. Essentially, it is to accept the world's view as correct and reject God's view as correct. Why would someone spiritually dead be more apt to do this? Because we've already read, they can't follow after God. They can't follow after His course, so they pick another that suits them. The course of this world is something that is inherently against God and His ways because it's a course that seeks its own way, its own way of salvation. Well, how do we see this playing out in the world today? Well, just think about it. Everything that we, everything that we look at as Christians and say, how could this be? You know, when we, when we see the news, when we see some, some terrible thing happening, we, we think, wow, why is this happening? The unbeliever looks at it and thinks, yes, this is right. And you can name any social issue of our day. Consider abortion, which is just obviously murder. But the unbeliever looks at it and says, not so quick. 
This isn't really murder. Sexual and gender issues. Well, this is not really wrong. Marriage and family. Well, we, we want to decide how we're going to do these things ourselves rather than, of course, relying on God's holy word to tell us how to do these things. Whenever the Christian says this is right, the world questions it. Why do they do that? Because they follow the course of this world. Why do they think, or why do they think this way? Well, again, because no one understands. No one seeks after God. No one does good. Not even one. So what are we to do? As the church, as those who have been made alive together with Christ Jesus our Lord, we are to preach the one thing that can change the hearts of men and women. We're to preach the gospel. What other message would we preach? We can argue about why Christian morality is the best, but if we're not showing them Jesus, we're wasting our time. We can preach about why I think that the Christian value is the right value for our country to walk in, but if I'm not mentioning the only name by which men and women can be saved, then I am not giving them the path of salvation. Christian morality is not the path of salvation. Jesus is. Jesus is the one in whom they must believe in order to find hope and salvation. In order to understand, to seek after God and to do good, they must know Jesus. Because there is another after their affections. If they aren't in Christ, he has them in his clutches. And that brings me to the next point, the prince of the air. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. In which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This term, the prince of the power of the air, is a kind of an odd term as we look at it. Throughout scripture, Satan is referred to as the prince of the earth or the ruler of this age. Later in this book, he's referred to as evil in the heavenly places and the cosmic forces, the deceiver of all, the, the father of lies, all these words that we have concerning Satan. I think the idea here is that Satan has dominion over everything between heaven and earth or between heaven and here, right? And I use this term dominion loosely, of course, because only authority he has is that which has been given to him by God. We don't worship in a dualistic kind of way, meaning what I mean by that is that where God and Satan are equal and opposites, and one of them is just simply relying on us, those faithful followers, to kind of tip the tide in one of their directions. That's not how that works. God is the God over Satan and evil also. We worship the God of the universe who controls not only the good but the bad, and Satan represents that which is bad. He rules over the unbelievers of the earth even without them agreeing to it. He is, or they are his. In Genesis 3, we read about what happened after the fall of man, and specifically I want to look at the words of God's words to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, and I'll just quote from there. God told the serpent, I will put enmity... Between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Satan here was given direct prophecy concerning his future, and he is informed that though he will deliver a a blow to the heel of this Savior that is to come, he will eventually have his head crushed by this seed of the woman. We know this to be Jesus himself, of course, who crushed the head of the serpent with his death and resurrection, and we as his people stand and share in that victory with him. However, Satan is still about on this earth. He prowls like a roaring lion, as we read in the New Testament, seeking out whom he will devour. As for those who don't worship God, they represent the seed of the serpent, those whom Satan has inherited as his team in this great battle for eternity. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather, scatters. Not believing in Jesus is the same thing as following after the prince of the air, after Satan himself. There's no middle ground when it comes to eternity. There are no abstentions when it comes to whether or not we believe in Jesus. We must pick a side, and for those of us who have been made alive in Christ, our side is picked. We follow Jesus. For others, they follow the prince of the power of the air, which is mentioned here in Ephesians 2. So how does that affect the way that we live and do ministry? It affects us to understand that there is an enemy that is greater than anything we see or hear on this earth. And he is behind much of the evil in the world. I think it's also helpful for us to put in perspective the little battles that we fight from day to day on this earth. There are many ways that Satan would attempt to thwart the work of the people of God. Since he can't affect us directly as God's people who have the spirit inside of us, he gets at us through little agitations here and there, causing chaos, accusing the church, accusing the brethren, only ever deceiving, only ever lying. Why would he do that? If he can't affect me directly, why would he do all this chaos around us in order to convince us that God isn't on the throne? Well, perhaps if I look at the world around me, I'll think maybe God isn't in control, that he isn't sovereign, that chaos reigns, and the little lies of life are actually true. Those little lies that I make up about myself, perhaps they are indeed real. Why would he do that? So that I'll be convinced that Jesus doesn't win in the end. That Jesus hasn't already won, because if he can convince me or you or any believer of that, he has grabbed a foothold into what we believe, and through that small crack in our armor, he'll let deceit and pride reign where truth and humility once stood firm. Brothers and sisters, our enemy doesn't war against the unbelievers of this world. Why would he? He already has them on his team. He fights against us because we have the truth. And with that truth, God sets the unbeliever free. It's God who makes them alive together in Christ, and he'll use the truth of the Scriptures to do that. So brothers and sisters in Christ, we stand firm as we face our enemy. He doesn't fight fair, but he fights as one who's already lost because he has. Stand firm in your faith. Continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the only truth, the only hope for a lost and dead in their trespasses world. That brings me to the last point, the desires of the heart. Again, let's look at verse 3. Among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Carrying out the desires of our body and mind is another way of saying, like Romans 1 says, that worship the creature rather than the creator. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins have the law of God written on their heart. They know the law of God, yet they are unable to comprehend it and they are unable to accept it as true. They're unable to seek after it. They're unable to follow it. So instead they follow their own desires. And what is the nature of their desires? Well, in Jeremiah, we're told the heart of man, which we, you know, we understand the heart to be the, the seat of all these emotions and personality. In 17.9, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This verse echoes much of what we've seen in the rest of Scripture concerning the state of man and sins, what we see in the New Testament and the Old. The heart of man is desperately sick and deceitful. Who can understand it? This question, who can understand it, even seems to kind of point at the, the shape and the nature of man's heart, that we that we, the owner of our hearts outside of Christ, are even unable to understand our own sinful condition, that we have no idea of even understanding how lost we are. We see this play itself out on a regular basis when folks can't even understand their own motives or desires behind the actions that they do. They just know it feels good, and they do it, which is a very non-human, animalistic way of behavior. They act according to their nature. Those terms that we read here in Ephesians 2, they're sons of disobedience, children of wrath. We tend to act according to our natures. And outside of Christ, our nature is disobedience and wrath. But in Christ, that nature is changed. Therefore, our desires change. Verse 4, just to skip ahead a little bit. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That has been changed in us, those of us who are in Christ. But for the rest of the world, we are left with those who are dead in their sins, whose desires are for the things of this world, for the prince of the power of the air of this world. What can we do? As the church, as we stand amongst the people who go after their own desires, who go after the prince of the power of the air, well, we show them, as the book of Haggai says, we show them the desire of every nation. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is the answer for every desire they have. They say they need love. Jesus has that. They say they need security. Jesus offers that. They need forgiveness and assurance of pardon. Jesus gives this. And I think the question for those who are here, if you have these kinds of questions, who will love you? Who will accept you? Who will keep you? If you've tried other things, you realize that they all fall short because they can't possibly give you what you need. They are the course of this world by definition. They are faulty. We need something that works. We need something that lasts forever, not just something that feels good today. 
Jesus says, Come to me, you who are sick, sad, and weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus alone can give you rest for your soul. It doesn't mean, of course, that the world is all of a sudden going to clear up, that every dark cloud is going to go away, and that you only have sunshine. We've heard, we've seen the words here. The world is a hard place. It's a desperate place that only seeks after itself. Yet those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. He is making all things new. So I urge you, if you do not know him, call upon his name and be saved. For those of us in Christ, we have a tall order because the world is dark and desperate. And it would be really easy for us in Christ to kind of pack our bags and just wait by the proverbial Bible bus stop. Just waiting for our ticket home. But we can't. Because the world needs hope. And we have it. We have that hope. We have the way that others can be made alive. Can be freed from this death. We can understand. We have been made to understand. We do and can seek after God. We can do good. We can. And we should do those things. The world will know about Jesus by what we say about him. And so we should preach Jesus Christ. To finish the story from the beginning, the army of the dead or the men of Dunharrow accept Aragorn's call and are joined forces with his army and they march toward the, the great white city. And it was with that help that Aragorn was able to deliver Middle-earth from certain destruction. Makes for a great story. Sorry, I spoiled the ending. It's great. You should see, or you see, that which was dead, that which was dead, was brought back to life and used by the king in order to bring about redemption. We, brothers and sisters in Christ, have been called to the same task. The world around us is dead in their trespasses and their sins, but for the grace of God, we would be just like them. But because of his grace and mercy in our lives, we have been made alive together with him. So let's take the power of the gospel into the world, into our town, into our workplaces, to those who are dead in their trespasses, and give them the gospel that brings life. Let's go to Jesus in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read these words, they would be without hope were it not for you. Lord, we are thankful for opening our eyes, for making us alive together with you. But Lord, help us to not simply rest on that truth, but to offer others the same hope that we have. Lord, help us be faithful. Help us to be faithful to preach your word to this world that is dying, to offer them no other hope but Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.